Yes, yes, hello, welcome to Herpetological Highlights, the podcast all about reptile and amphibian science. I'm Tom Major and co-hosting with me, as per usual, is Ben Marshall. And in this 96th episode, we're getting ever closer to 100 episodes, which will be a nice big milestone. We've got absolutely no plan for it, so uh, watch this space. But I'm sure we'll do something marginally different. <laughs> watch this different. space because we don't know what's happening in it. <laughs> yeah, something something will happen. It's it's a big milestone. I'll be proud to hit it. So um, yeah, we'll have to do something a bit different, but uh, to be confirmed. But in this episode, uh, we've got a Patreon special. So big up and big thanks to our Patreon, Jack Christie, for supporting the podcast and suggesting this episode topic. And the topic which Jack suggested was trapping methodologies, basically. So we've had a little dig and we've tried to find some examples of papers where they've tested different trapping methodologies, but we've put a slightly different spin on it, I think it's fair to say, looking at the personalities of animals depending on well, whether or not personality influences how likely you are to catch animals, which is quite an interesting perspective. And then also whether or not differently coloured animals have different personalities. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's important to consider sort of animal side when trapping animals, right? It's not it's not just all down to technique. There's, there's way more going on there. So Yeah. Yeah. Trying try to capture a little bit of that and try to highlight some of the Things that maybe people don't consider as frequently when when thinking about trapping. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, all of the papers which we're doing today concern a bunch of Australian dragons, a genus of agamid lizards called Tenophorus, which has a silent C in it. I didn't realize I had a silent C in it. I'm glad I googled it because I'd probably have just started saying Catenophorus. But I certainly would have. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So let's get into the first paper. So this one is by Johnston, MacArthur and Banks, 2021. Catch me if you can. Personality drives technique-specific biases during live capture trapping, published in Wildlife Research. Very fitting, because this is research on wildlife. So we're talking about Tenophorus isolepis, a.k.a. the military dragon, which is a wide-ranging species across Central it, and Western Australia. Doesn't it have a, have a separate name that isn't military dragon? Like a, Not, a slightly less... Um, weird <laughs> name. I don't know why they're called military dragons. I don't know where that comes from. Maybe it's because they've got like sort of military star camouflage. I don't. I don't know of another common name for these guys, which doesn't involve uh, some kind of sort of warfare re- mention, though. Malie sand dragon. Nope, that's the new species that you've spoiled now. That's that's Fordi, I think, isn't it? Oh, so what one are we talking about? Uh, we're talking about Tenophorus isolepis. Military sand dragon. Yeah, military sand dragon. What? Why? I don't know, mate. I don't know. It doesn't have another name that's common. We'll just call it Tenophorus. Or we'll just call it... We'll do what they do in the paper. We'll refer to it as dragon. Yeah, that's okay. Chop, chop out the spoiler, though. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's funny. Um, yeah, so, like I said, it's this... Tenophorus isolepis, aka military dragon, although we won't refer to it as that. Wide-ranging species across Central and Western Australia. They're quite small, up to 75 millimetres snout to vent length, so not including the tail. So 7.5 centimetres plus tail. And they're an annual species, which means they generally only live for one year. Um, They live fast and they die young. And there's some quite sort of ambiguous 
um, etymology for this species. So Tenophorus, the generic name, means comb bearer, which refers to the comb-like scales around the eyes. Yep, all right, cool. It's pretty straightforward, like that. But then Isolepis, which is the species epithet, translates to equal scale. And that name, to me, is a bit confusing. I mean, perhaps it's got some equality in the size of the scales somewhere on it, which would make sense. But I was desperate to understand this. So I actually went through and found the 1881 species description and translated it all using Google Translate. And there was no mention of the reason behind the name in that paper. So not quite <laughs> sure why they went for it. That was a big waste of time. It, yeah, it could have been a comparative thing, maybe like uh, maybe the, the, the scales used to differentiate other members of that genus have distinctly different scales and this one doesn't. Or something yeah, along those lines. That so it's not necessarily a trait that's immediately apparent without comparison. Yeah, the only other reason I could think of was that there is a genus of grasses, which are found in Australia and Africa, called Isolepis, which were described in the early 1800s. So it could be that uh, it's got something to do with that, because this is a species which lives around grass. But they do Isolepis, like, what is it, spin, spin effects? And yeah, but the, the, this grass... Isolepis grass is not spinifex. It's not a hummock-forming grass, which is what we'll get into the, the species quite likes. But what? So really, multiple leads have led to to no real answers. The trail's gone cold, mate. To be honest, it's now so we... filed away under cold cases. So if anyone knows why, <laughs> why they're called military dragons for one, yeah. First of all, and why are they military dragons? Isolepis. And second of all, where does that species epithet come from? They do apparently like hummock grass and shrubby areas. Although, like I said, Isolepis, the grass isn't a hummock grass. But hummocks are these uniquely Australian evergreen perennial growth forms of a grass which grows up to one metre tall. And uh, th these lizards love living among these sort of tussocky grasses and scrubby sandy areas. And the main threat to these individuals when they go about their annual life cycle is getting eaten by birds, corvids and raptors like munching on these guys. Did you did you see uh did you see the word for describing them uh avoiding open areas so they're they're less exposed to these these aerial predators? I did and I really liked it. I also uh what was it? Than Thigmotaxis? Thigmotaxis, yeah, this yeah. idea that the edges are safer than the middle. Yeah. Avoid exposed areas, which I think is something we can all we can all relate to at times. If you've right? ever played dodgeball, you'll know exactly what thigmataxis yeah. is. Stay near the edge, for God's sake. Hide behind your conspecifics if you can. <laughs> Don't go out into the very middle because it's extremely hostile territory and it's yep. no different for these lizards. Yep. Yeah, so the idea behind this paper, obviously, when you're doing studies of animals, you need to catch some animals quite a lot of the time. And different methods of catching animals have different success rates. You know, some some methods capture more animals than others. Some are ineffective. But you need to consider more than just the ability to catch numbers of animals. In fact, it could be that the animals themselves, via their personalities, bring about some biases in how likely they are to be caught. I mean, you could imagine if you were trying to... Do you remember how Steve Irwin used to dive off boats and catch the turtles? Yeah. Yeah, well, if you were a turtle who's thinking i don't know maybe i mean i don't know what personality trait you would call it but maybe if you're a little bit more of a shy turtle Lo you spend more boats. time yeah you, you're more spooked hates by boats, boats. yeah that's a personality and trait hates love boats. or hate of boats 
<laughs> yeah, so perhaps you're a turtle that hates boats, hates boats. You're less, less likely to be caught by Steve Irwin doing a swan dive off the bow of a boat onto you. The same is true for lizards. And what they wanted to see in this paper, they had two methods of catching the lizards. But bef- I mean, before you, before you do the two, two methods, why does it even matter, though? What do you mean, why does it matter? Why did, well, why does it matter if you're capturing the brave ones or the shy ones? As long as you catch enough, you catch enough, right? Yeah, I see what you're saying. I see what you're saying. And it's a, it's a compelling argument. But there could be other traits associated with boldness or shyness which affect elements of their behavior, which means that you won't be getting an accurate sample of the way a species behaves if you're only catching them one way. You know, it could be that morphological things, maybe only the biggest lizards are brave enough to stand around and get caught, while the smaller ones, the shyer ones, you won't see. So you could you could essentially missample your population. Yeah, yeah. So the two methods are pitfall traps and noosing. So of these two... Are we... Before, before you... Again, I'm going to jump in. I'm swap out the use of noosing for lassoing. Yeah, I see. I see. I can see the. I can see the argument for that. Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure if we want to spend time in this episode sort of detailing why, but like. <laughs> yeah, that's probably fair. I like, haven't even. Yeah, should we yeah, just yeah. just use lassoing and ignore what they do in the paper and ignore the whole issue? I'm. I think we've. I think we've brought it up in the past. Yeah, maybe we have. Like just this entire episode, just not address it directly because I think we have, but just use lassoing and and just normalize that and and forget what the paper does. Yep. So lassoing the lizards is one method and pitfall traps are the other. Of the two methods, lassoing is the most fun and pitfall trapping is the most not fun because pitfall trapping is just digging a hole. And sometimes like in this paper, they, uh, they have some nets leading towards the hole. So it sort of guides the lizards into the hole, sort of like a, a drift fence. And yeah, that's a passive trapping methodology where they just wait for lizards to drop in. And the other method they wanted to compare the personalities of lizards caught by was lassoing, which is where you go up with the a, a stick or a fishing rod with a length of um, fishing line attached to it. And you tie a knot, which tightens when you pull it and you lasso the animal around the head usually or like head over the front arms usually just around the neck and then you just quickly lift the rod and uh yeah it tightens up you caught yourself a little lizard that way yeah i think sometimes people use like dental floss and stuff like slightly softer softer lines than straight fishing line i feel it's one of those like techniques that is super super cheap to implement a lot of the time (laughs) yeah yeah and it, I've never actually done it. Have you? Uh, have I actually done it? I've seen it being done. Where have you seen it? Madagascar. Ah, oh, what were the uh, focal species? Uh, a pleurus saxicola, I think. <gasps> nice. Oh, cool. And have I Saxicola. seen it done with monitor lizards in Thailand at any point? Like, I've seen it done to snakes. Or I've seen snakes that have had it done to them, but not in a not in a way that you would if you were conducting a study on snakes. So it was like caught for food type of thing, or uh, well, no, caught to caught to get the snake away from where it was, but not done in a way that really was safe for the snake. Right, I was using that horrible nylon um, like packing cord. You know, you get that like blue nasty stuff that slices into your hands. I've seen oh, that right. used on snakes. 
and that's yeah, yeah i feel like that's the kind of material that could easily bite into flesh and just be quite unpleasant 100 percent. which is why i was bringing up the floss thing and things because it's like there are a lot of different ways to do the to do the lassoing to minimize the stress and damage to the animal because yeah. i mean what you're describing if done if done wrong i feel like grabbing something by the neck could be pretty dangerous for it like this is this is something to be undertaken with care yeah yeah it, it goes without saying that if you're planning on uh, lassoing any animals consider their you know their well-being don't just go out willy-nilly <laughs> don't yeah. use razor wire Razor, razor wire would be a poor choice. Razor wire would be a different study. So yeah, the idea is look at catch up a bunch of these animals using these two different techniques, pitfall traps and lassoing, and then perform a behavioral experiment on the two groups and see if they differ in their boldness, in their boldness and shyness. And this study was conducted at Ithabuka Station in the Simpson Desert. So it's real sandy. There's like these big sand dunes and in between the sand dunes there's some nice vegetation and this is the kind of area that they were sampling in so yeah once they had captured the dragons they tested them in the personality arena which involves bunging the lizard the personality arena i love it it's good isn't it yeah it's like the, it's like it's like a a thunderdome an just emotional more thunderdome. peaceful yeah yeah um so yeah more they intellectual. get the, yeah they get the lizard there's this five meter by five meter arena, which is divided into 16 squares. And they put the lizard under a hide initially, so it's not like freaking out too much. And then after a while, they they film the lizard inside the arena over a certain amount of time. And they quantify either boldness or shyness based on how many squares the dragon actually enters. So how many squares is it like walking around in? And also particularly how many of the interior squares it goes into. So squares that are away from the edge of the arena, because as we were talking about earlier, thigmotaxis, which is this idea that animals will generally wall hug because they feel safer nearer a wall. So logically you can assume that if an animal's more bold, it will leave the seeming relative safety of the edges of the arena and venture into the middle. Yeah. Yeah, which I think is I think is pretty fair. I mean, they've established that this is a species which is vulnerable to aerial predators, and getting under something, getting hidden, is a good defense against that. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. So, should we talk about what they found? The differences. Yeah, yeah. So, what did they spend? Like thirty-eight hours searching for for lizards with their lassoes at the ready, and uh, eight hundred twenty-eight trap nights pitfalls so plenty of time for lizards to fall in things and plenty of time for uh, them to lasso some lizards ended up getting oof, how many did they get not a crazy amount it was like 31, 31? lizards yeah 30 came 30 for the study 31 one was excluded for some reason uh it was excluded because i think it refused to participate ah the old conscientious objector though <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it, it comes up somewhere right i, I I feel like it's a good reason. I want to. I want to find it. Surely that's the most bold lizard of all. <laughs> most independently minded. I guess it depends whether you perceive refusal as boldness or shyness. I, it really could go either way, depending on circumstance. Oh yeah, no, it was. I think it was. It was <laughs> unreliably leaving um, lizard tracks in the sand during their their boldness test. So it was hard to quantify whether it was staying near the edge or, or going into the interior. Basically, it, it wasn't leaving adequately visible footfalls. Oh, right. Was that because of the wind? Surely the lizard doesn't have some really weird gait that just reduces its footprints. 
I mean, it could have been a smaller individual, so less sort of imprint plus the wind. They did mention the wind being being the main source of, of obscuring the tracks. So maybe a combo? Maybe, maybe a bit both. So they've got these 30 lizards. They've put them in the arena. They're looking at how shy or how bold they are. Lassoing captured what they considered to be shyer individuals. So they ex- entered less exposed grids. And pitfall traps captured what they considered to be bolder individuals. So you've got lassoing capturing the shy guys and pitfall traps capturing the bold ones, which is kind of strange because lassoing is usually associated with a high degree of perceived risk for animals. And you'd think it would select for bolder individuals, right? Because if you can get close enough to lasso it, it's probably going to be pretty cocky little creature because it hasn't run away. (laughs) But that wasn't what they found. They found the opposite. The the thing with pitfalls, you're expecting it to sort of capture animals relatively randomly. Yeah, they're sort of wandering about, coming across the drift fence, wandering along the drift fence, falling in a bucket. Yeah. Like, there are limited opportunities for personality really influence that. I would say the only one that could be linked to boldness is maybe bold, bolder animals are travelling more or are more actively uh, sort of patrolling a territory if there's territoriality there, and therefore... Increased movement, more likely to come across a fence, more likely to walk into the bucket. Whereas if a shy individual didn't move around as much, maybe that's the way a sort of pitfall could could target more bold individuals, maybe? Yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, so this kind of like opposite to expected finding, they suggest, one of the things they suggest is that shy individuals may have been easier to lasso because they had a tendency to hang out closer to vegetation being shy closer to um somewhere to hide you know they mm-hmm. they didn't actually yeah. quantify that it's just an idea and similarly like you've just said ben basically the pitfall traps might encourage bolder animals because they're moving further but also potentially if the because the pitfall traps were set in relatively open areas they might be bolder by virtue of the fact they're even in the open areas right right so yeah but What this paper quite effectively communicates is this idea that there is a personality bias in animals which are captured via different methods. You know, these animals caught by lassoing and caught by pitfall traps are measurably different in their personality traits. So if had you only lassoed or had you only used pitfall traps, you would be capturing a subset of the population that was either more or less bold, which is quite valuable i would say pretty interesting pretty interesting finding another consideration in ecological studies yeah especially if you're let's let's say you're you're comparing two populations and you're using the same trapping method you know perfect comparison right the only difference is one population happens to have a great frequency of uh i don't know bold individuals and you're both using uh pitfall traps one population is actually going to look bigger because you're essentially capturing more individuals, but you're assuming that the probability of capturing one individual would be the same, right? Why, why would it differ between these two populations? That'd probably only differ by the capture method. But there's this extra little variable that'd be quite hard to quantify without, you know, actually assessing it like this paper did, that could boost the chances of getting individuals at one population, but perhaps not so much at another. Mm. So it's... I think this this stuff becomes even more important when either, like you've mentioned previously, you're you're looking or investigating something that might be connected to these traits and connected to something that impacts sampling. But equally, it could be important when you're dealing with something that affects uh, 
sort of sampling differently at different sites. Mm. We just need to develop a methodology which is completely independent of the animals' personalities. We just need drones, but they fly super high up. The lizards can't see them. And then what they do is they fire down nets onto the lizards, regardless of how bold they are. Well, this is, if you're talking about like working out where lizards are and things like that, that's where sort of methods like eDNA are interesting because that's not going to be as biased towards personality, perhaps, depending on the way you're collecting it. But like, there are different methods out there. And I think that they highlight towards the end of this, probably the solution is you use a number of methods to compensate for the difference in personality. So you're capturing different aspects of the population. Now, how to actually stratify that, how much effort goes into each capture method, that's going to be extremely hard, extremely hard to measure or even get right. But a broader approach, combined methods, eh, seems a pretty sensible recommendation. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's... uh... Yeah, I think that's probably the take-home message of this paper. It's just something else to consider, isn't it? So, um, yeah, there you go. A little bit of personality influencing live capture trapping of Tenophorus isolepis, which is a cool little dragon with a mysterious name. And let's move on to paper two, shall we? Well, before we do, I do want to highlight, because I always always brag on papers for not providing data. These guys provided data. Data right there, fig share, went, looked at it instantly understood format of the data and it helped me understand what their what their model was that they or the comparisons they ran like bam 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 job done instant they had a lovely little readme file about what each column was all nicely organized so it was instantly understandable even if i hadn't you know read the entirety of the paper well impressed i think there was Good a little stuff. bit missing on the um on the pitfall on the pitfall boldness assessment but uh, other than that very happy all pitfalls avoided, bar one. Paper two is Ewers, Pryke and Stuart Fox, 2016. Behavioural differences across contexts may indicate more specific strategies in the lizard Tenophorus decresii, published in Animal Behaviour. So, yeah, we're still on the genus Tenophorus. This time we are moving over to... The south, a species called Tenophorus decresii, aka the tawny crevice dragon. And this is a species, the specific epithet comes from the island of Decres in Australasia, which is one of the places this animal is found. And like I say, they're found in South Australia and islands off the south of Australia. And, you know, in appearance, they're sort of similar, Your typical sort of small, agamid, dragony looking lizard but the males can be conspicuously colored yellow and orange and they put on big displays they're quite competitive animals they put on displays where they stick their butts in the air and they do these like funny little reverse press-ups they also like showing off their chins and uh, the males also do this butt dance when they fight because they're highly territorial they've always got beef and the females conversely are sort of a bit more drab in coloration um and i don't think they're quite as aggy with each other (laughs) Uh, But what's interesting about this species is that they have polymorphic populations. So that means they've got populations with multiple different color morphs, all existing at the same time in the same place. But not necessarily in harmony. But not necessarily in harmony, no. Uh, And so there's been quite a lot of work on this uh, particular 
group on this particular species even actually and the previous work has found out some quite telling things so males adjust their aggressive response to competitors based on prior experience so whether they know the individual they also consider whose territory they're in when they get into a fight and they also consider how close their rival is to them and how big their rival is so there's quite a few things going through these lizards minds when they decide to get into an agonistic encounter um, but one thing they haven't really measured yet uh, is aggressive response to throat color so are these different differently colored lizards which have a colorful patch on their throat Firstly, do the different colours behave differently in the presence of other different colours? And secondly, do lizards of different colours react differently to the threat of predators? So those are the two things they wanted to find out. And they used field experiments to test these hypotheses and see whether they exhibit different behaviours based on their colour. Yeah, we got a, we got a little model uh, experiment here. I think we've talked about uh, putting out plasticine models of snakes to test uh, the likelihood of predators going after certain color morphs and stuff. This is this is a well-tested um, experimental process here. But in this case, we have these lovely little uh, models of lizards with different colored uh, throats and different colors. Uh, actually, not different colors on the flanking, but uh, markings on the flanks that are male specific and they had what four four different types or five five different types we had a lovely control that was entirely blank nothing on that at all uh gray morph which basically looked like the control but with these <laughs> these specific markings it was like all right male lizard yeah they uh they also the gray is like the same gray measured yeah. by a spectrometer as the gray of the lizard whereas the control gray i think is more of a casual gray Oh, casual, yeah, gotcha. <laughs> Not lizard grey. No. <laughs> we then have a trio of coloured ones, ranging from yellow, yellow-orange, and orange. And that sort of captures the diversity of lizard coloration in this, this population. Yeah. So this is the fight experiment, right? This is the, uh, the in the wild, will it fight the plasticine model? Yeah, ag- aggression. Because they, like, they, they quantified um, or they recorded behaviours sub-bite. Uh, like, bite's as high as... It, <laughs> it goes from don't care to bite. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they had uh, tail flick as the most insignificant aggressive behaviour, followed by distended throat or gula display, which is starting to get livid now. And then hind leg push-up which is the hilarious little butt dance we talked about earlier. Those are considered twos. And then lunge and bite are grade three aggressive behaviours. <laughs> which, let's, let's face it, that's, you never want to experience a grade three aggressive behaviour, ever. If you can avoid it, yeah. just try and avoid it. Yeah, if you, see, if you see someone doing sort of a weird butt dance, try and appease them if you can. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, they did that, didn't they? They they introduced the differently coloured models to wild lizards. They basically just went up to them and then poked the fake lizard in their face and saw how they reacted to it. <laughs> well, that's a, I mean, you make it sound very blunt, like they're sort of <laughs> they're they're pushing in the lizard on a stick and sort of jabbing the jabbing the lizard. They they, they place a lizard what a meter away, something along those lines. <laughs> Is that yeah? Yeah, they they weren't. 
because we have had ones um, like eliciting uh, bite likelihood out of snakes where they did have like a fake creature on a stick that they oh, yeah. poke towards. It, I mean, it's not quite as intense as those experiments we've talked about in the past. Yeah, there's ones with chameleons as well with Dr. Stuart Fox as an author where they have like crow or a snake on a stick and they jab yeah. it at the chameleon to see what yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so those experiments do work, but it wasn't quite as uh, aggressive in this one. It was a bit more chill. I think, to be honest, it's probably just because it's not, um, you know, these animals are aggy enough that all it takes is to just put a lizard near them and they'll start kicking off. Yeah, we approached the lizard, placed the model above the rock crevice in which the lizard took refuge so that when the lizard emerged, the throat colour of the model would be largely visible. So you can imagine it, lizard gets spooked by... By researcher hides in a rock crevice, it's sitting there, looking out, waiting. Okay, everything seems to have calmed down. It walks out, it looks up, and it sees an interloper on its favourite rock above its crevice. Instant visibility of the throat. And and I can only assume fury entails. Well, I mean, as we saw, it it, it depends on the colour of the throat of both the offending lizard and the defending lizard, doesn't it? That's true. That's true. We've got some interesting results here for sure. Yeah. So, yeah, male colour morphs definitely had different aggression levels depending on the colour of the model they were presented with. Orange morph males were more aggressive than yellow or grey ones. Uh, grey ones actually were, were sort of... I think you can just sort of call the, the orange morphs as most aggressive of the morphs, right? Yeah. There's no doubt. Yeah, there's really no doubt. They are they are the aggiest, followed by yellow. Yellow, they like getting ticked off, although seemingly most by yellow ones um, and orange ones. But not caring as much about grey, specifically. Yeah, so they, grey, were, they were very uh, particular about who they put the effort in to be aggressive towards. Yeah, and also what's interesting is that the control models were virtually ignored by all colors that the lack of male specific patterning on the flanks and the colored patch underneath really serves to uh, stop them from getting annoyed well and illustrate the importance of those patches potentially or some aspect of the coloration yeah recognizing the fact that you're an enemy yeah uh so yeah uh gray were consistently chill basically um gray you know they don't like other lizards, don't get me wrong, but they are noticeably less aggressive. Yeah. And they were not very aggressive towards orange, which suggests maybe they're a little bit frightened of the orange ones. Well, I would be. Same. No doubt. I mean, they didn't seem to, they didn't seem to discriminate. They just, they were looking for a fight. <laughs> orange take on all comers at all times, basically. Yeah. Let's talk about why. So um, red and orange, everyone knows they are hostile colors in nature right like you even get told i remember being told as a kid no, like, i i i disagree with that generalization what that orange and red are aggy colors yes have you ever seen someone wearing an orange tie have you ever eaten a tomato have you ever well, smelt a poppy yeah but it's not an animal right but you didn't say animal you said nature in nature oh man okay so <laughs> <laughs> and I immediately thought tomatoes and how I could really go for a tomato right now. And that would be a great experience. Okay. So and the fact, you know, that's red, red's a big deal because not everything can see red. 
Well, isn't there the theory that we evolved to see red so we could pick apples? Precisely. A non-hostile object <laughs> unless they're lobbed at your head at god knows what yeah speed. but red red is also important in human communication because one of the only things that we can do to demonstrate our feelings on a color level is to go red right but red doesn't necessarily communicate hostility sometimes it does sometimes, sometimes it does but it can also and embarrassment yeah or yes. grievous bodily harm maybe that's what's happening here the orange ones are just embarrassed it could be through that embarrassment, they get incredibly defensive and by that aggressive and they lash out. It's just typical. Yeah. Okay. So let's narrow it down. We're not talking about nature as a whole. Red has multiple functions, but in wildlife, in animals, and particularly in lizards, red is well known to be a color which demonstrates uh, some level of dominance, which is uh, wrought through hostility. Let's say that. So there's a whole laundry list of lizards that they mention in their discussion, which are known to be dominant or most aggressive. So Tenophorus pictus, another one of these Tenophorus lizards, Podarchus melicellensis. That's a good one. I don't think I've ever read that before. Podarchus melicellensis. Melicellensis. So something about dark something? Mela, as in mel melanin? Nah, look, it's got ensis on the end. It must be from melicell. Oh. Oh, Yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah, there's loads of others. Scaloporus consabrinus. Uh, don't know what the U stands for. U stands biriana. Um, so yeah, there's a bunch of lizards which being red or orange suggests that they're either dominant or most aggressive. And I mean, the same is true of these lizards, right? Orange equals... Yeah, as the, as the colour sort of becomes warm, the uh, the aggression levels tally up with it it seems to fit perfectly with those other examples um yeah yeah it's interesting that so we've got this this odd context of orange being aggressive towards gray and yeah. yellow not being very aggressive towards gray and you've got to wonder about the sort of trade-offs so yellow why isn't it being toward you know aggressive towards gray is it is it it doesn't need to. It's not worth the uh, sort of energy cost. But then why would orange bother? Is it a capability Someone's thing? Someone's got to keep those greys in line. I suppose. But why doesn't why doesn't yellow feel the need to? Yeah, it's just interesting that it's such an honest signal of their personality, the colour. Yeah. It just suggests that, yeah, that coloration is just twinned with some kind of behaviour. I mean, maybe it serves more as a warning to the other lizards than it does to the actual agginess of the lizards that are uh -huh. performing the aggression. Yeah, okay. So so you see an orange lizard, you know, to just be like, leave it, mate. Leave it. Right. Nutter. And what we're seeing here is a sort of maintenance of that signal. Mm. So orange don't necessarily have to expend that extra energy if the other lizards know it's not worth the effort. Yeah. And in we, fact, yellow sort of demonstrate that by not bothering with grey, if yeah. you see what I mean. They're, they're almost the more optimised. Yeah, yellow are like <laughs> the reasonable. They're only fighting ones that they know they're directly competing against, which is fellow yellow slash sort of warm-throated uh, individuals. Yeah. Maybe. It would be really useful to live in a society, not that this is a society, but living in a society where 
<laughs> high progressive domineering individuals had to wear some kind of hat <laughs> to do, so you need to steer well clear of. <laughs> like when you're deciding how to queue at the bar it's just some some big dope with a red hat and you're just like leave it out all right <laughs> i'll go to the other end mate don't worry about it yeah exactly yeah so yeah Orange ones are aggiest, followed by yellow, followed by grey. Let's talk about what I termed the predator bravery experiment. So uh, this was the second part. Oh, yes. Yeah. So I, you, your, 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 your novel term for it completely threw me off. because I, <laughs> I thought you'd like it. You liked I, the last one. I do, yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm well up for it, but I just, it just caught me off guard. So this is the predator bravery test. And what they wanted to see was whether or not differently colored lizards behave differently in the presence of predators. In this case, the predator is the most dangerous game of all, man. And humans walked towards the dragons, one human at a time, and just simply measured how close they could get before the lizard took flight and decided to run away. And they call that the flight initiation distance or FID. And FID... They didn't, they didn't do this for the control models, so... This this is on real lizards, not the models. <laughs> yeah. Goes without saying it would have been a waste of time to test the FID of plasticine models. Yeah. So FID was actually greatest. And when I say FID, I mean flight initiation distance. Well, for the grey morph, followed by orange, yellow, and then the orange, yellow ones. Um, so grey is not only the least aggressive but also but most the cowardly. least bold. Yeah, cowardly. Yeah, yeah. greys yeah. are just big wimps. They're just nervous. Skittish, is, perhaps, yeah. Skittish, yeah. So, yeah, orange, stick around a bit longer. And then the yellowy-coloured ones, um, they stick around the longest, which is kind of not quite in keeping with their uh, aggressive behaviours. But still. Well, you're, you're saying that, but the difference between orange and yellow isn't that much compared to grey. Yeah, greys are noticeably the most cowardly. Right. Yeah. So and it almost... There's something to me that sort of tallies up logically about the most aggressive also not being um, the boldest when it comes to predation stuff. Because it, it feels like orange just have a higher propensity to move and get things done. Yeah. Someone's rolling into my territory. Right, get them out of here. What's that coming over? Could be coming to get me. I'm out of here. You know, it just feels... <laughs> It feels a like they're bit. a more proactive lizard. I know I'm just pouring loads of conjecture onto <laughs> how, how I'm how I'm building this lizard personality, but to me, that's how that's how I'm seeing it. A rare level of anthropomorphization there. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. They're go getters. I mean, that's what I think they say that in the paper, don't they? Orange are the go getters. Grey are the cowardly little wussies who you know aren't really interested in getting in any kind of a fight. And yellow's all about efficiency. Yeah. Only going to go targeting the lizards that they, they need to fight and not bothering to move until they need, you know, they know it's necessary. Yeah. But that's, that's not, that's, you know, this is, this is us putting far more beyond what the results are really <laughs> saying here. This is. <laughs> but yeah, again, I think to summarize this paper, once again, there's differences in the behavior of these animals and uh, it is correlated with their color. So, you know, we're getting an image of a, extremely uh, dynamic species with lots and lots yeah. of different things going on especially for an animal that only lives one year it's all of this stuff well, going on this is this is what's sort of neat about it so they they bring up at the end of the paper that you've got these the potential for two conflicting um 
sort of selection pressures that that allow this polymorphism to continue to exist because you'd expect if one was just straight up better eventually it would become dominant and that would just be the uh the morph the coloration that's used for this species so you've got this counterplay potentially maybe bolder ones are more sort of successful reproductively and sort of you know that boldness aids them in that but perhaps that boldness also leads them to get predated more frequently mm. um so they've got lower survival less chances for repeated reproduction whereas the gray ones maybe perhaps less boldness reducing that sort of reproductive potential but also boosting survival rate so you've got these two pros and cons competing against each other and potentially balancing out and leaving a scenario where polymorphism can continue to exist relatively stably i don't know but they're saying if we could get survival data then yeah you'd be a long way to answering that Sometimes it pays to be the sneaky cuttlefish. Yeah, right. The cuttlefish example, um, I feel like we had an example with uh, Anolis lizards ages and ages ago on the podcast. It's uh, yeah. It comes up again and again and again. I think maybe even grass snakes. There's What's something that? going on with those strawberry dart frogs. Right. Yes, there was, and that was polymorphism too, not just, not mm. just sneaky males, bold male stuff. Yeah, that was orange and blue, different behaviours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, this is probably a pretty common thread. It would be interesting. I would love to see more animals studied in this way that have slight differences to their coloration because I think there's going to be so many of these kinds of relationships. Yeah, it's it's always complicated to unpick because of all the other things sort of tying it together about you know size and head size and sort of other... Because you're never really going to fully understand what uh, what individuals are selecting for both the male selection pressure and the female selection pressure. So it's you can't study them in isolation either. You do have to capture both both sides of that selection. There's always two sides to the selection story. Right, which is why sort of survival is a nice sort of way to get around it because then you're just looking at, all right, what actually survived, what actually made it compared to yeah. previous generations. Cool. Well, I think that ties up our episode on trapping methodologies so thanks very much jack and uh yeah we've got a species of the bi week now which remarkably ties in to an extent which has probably never before been seen So this is Sadlia Colgan, Beetson and Cogger, 2019, Tenophorus. Oh, I'd hate it when they put the name in the title. I'm not going to say it yet. Such and such as Tenophorus, a Tenophorus. I thought I, I knew- spoiled this earlier by saying by saying a different species and then it's not. It's different. No, but you used the common name. You were talking about the Mali dragon, which I think is a common name for Tenophorus fordi, which is the species this species has been split from. Ah. Oh. Yeah. Wheels within wheels. Got Don't you. beat yourself up, mate. So yeah, a new species of dragon lizard from Triodia Mali habitat of Southeast Australia, published in records of the Australian Museum. So essentially the authors of this paper were conducting some morphological and genetic investigations into the easternmost populations of Tenophorus fordi, which are dependent on this Triodia Mali habitat of inland Southeast Australia. 
And uh, yeah, they looked at this group as they suspected they might be a bit different. And sure enough, they formed a discrete genetic group, sister to Tenophorus fordi. And yeah, they've named it, given it a nice name, and they've called it Tenophorus spinodomus, which is a combination of the Latin spinosus for spiny and domus for home, which refers to the species reliance on triodia grass hummocks. So spiny dome home. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. The spiny home lizard. Um, and because the common name Mali dragon has already been applied to Tenophorus fordi, as we just said, in keeping with the concept, they decide to call this one the Eastern Mali dragon um, because it's further to the east, which makes a lot, a lot of sense. And it will be found on the red sand plains of the Mali dune fields. Yeah, only uh, 40, so what, what are we talking, 45 to 50 SVL. Tiny. So, pretty tiny. Yeah, they occur on these red sand plains. Um, yeah, very dependent on triodia, hummock grass. And um, yeah, because they're so reliant on that habitat type and they're actually reliant on a particular successional stage of the grass. Um, and it is a grass which is subject to quite frequent burning naturally. Um, but obviously fire regimes in Australia, a little bit haywire at the moment heavily influenced by humans mm. who have an opinion on what should burn and when. And uh, yeah, that does present a threat to this species basically because they've obviously existed in this area yeah. which naturally burns in a natural way yeah. and prescribed burns and increased burns because of climate change and more intense burns could potentially be negative for them. Yeah, being very in sync with a certain type of burn regime and having that suddenly change, yeah. You can you can imagine other ways that could have knock-on effects, not just habitat, but in prey and all sorts. Yeah, but uh, yeah, the the environment looks very typically Australian, in my opinion. Sort of red sand with this like tussock grass, tussock hummock grass. We have tussocks in the UK. This is hummock grass, and it looks like potentially those are eucalyptus trees. I don't know. Just go eucalyptus. It's in Australia. Um, Mate, you can say eucalyptus for a lot of places. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. It actually. I, all over the place. I was in Portugal a couple of weeks ago and yeah, there's eucalyptus everywhere. Yeah. And cork bark plantations, which are just incredible. Never seen that before. Peel the mm. bark off, let it grow back. Nice little sustainable industry with some woodland. Love that. Yeah. Key habitat in places too. Yeah, really, really fun, cool habitat as well to be in. So, uh, yeah, I think that just about rounds it up for this new species. Gonna, it's not you're not going to say as, what they look like? It's, it's not quite as gaudy, is it, as the uh, other Tenophora species we've been looking at. Um, sort of a small brown lizard with a couple of white stripes down the back, long stripes. And then again, it's got that kind of mossy effect to it. Um, yeah. Which presumably provides some quite nice camouflage. And can so, you're saying brown, but can also get to a sort of warmer, a warmer orange brown, almost like a terracotta, I would say. Mm. Yeah. Presumably to help blend in with the sand. Yes, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> Great. So yeah, that's a brand new species, Tenophorus spinodomus, which is super name. Um, so yeah. Great, new species, another another individual species in the genus Tenophorus. Perhaps there'll be some interesting behavioral studies coming out on these guys and we can look at which ones are more aggressive than others. 
down the road. <laughs> a particular eastern hyper-aggressive species, yeah. Have you got any other business? Uh, no. No, nor do I. Um, oh, except to briefly mention, and our patrons will know this, but this is episode obviously was like an entire patron episode, but we've changed it now so that um, patrons pick one paper. And the only reason we've done that is because um we we didn't have we didn't have enough episodes for patrons so we've made that small change <laughs> yeah that's literally only x number of uh episodes per year <laughs> yeah it's just get it just gotten to the point where it was like we were keeping up but if we do any more we can't so yeah now it's just one paper and we'll try and tie patron episodes together a little bit more so just to be 100 crystal clear that's what we're going to be doing uh, but that's all outlined on our patreon website so yeah, I think if we haven't got any other business uh, beyond that, uh, all that remains to be said is thank you very much for listening. Yeah, thanks for listening. 